This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Another week of Green in the Apocalypse, your weekly look at the future and how to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Adam Grubb, Bushy's away, yeah, but there's a few of us here, Sarah Coles, how do you do? I've got a broken toe. Yeah. It's annoying me, I think I, think I re-broke it kicking something. A shark. Oh. Maybe, but other <laughs> than that I'm very, very well. Excellent. How are you? I'm quite good. I decided, uh, yeah, I learnt not to try and chop down trees with a pruning saw in <laughs> 34 degree heat today. Yep. So, lesson learned. Yep. Yep. I saw yep. people on a roof today with no shirts on, mm. carpenters, just building stuff. Mm. And I thought, that's pretty dangerous. And you watched them for hours. <laughs> they made a YouTube channel. <laughs> I knew some, uh, this was going back, but yeah, a German roof, roof builder and their rule at work was you can't have your first beer until 10am. Oh. It's pretty lenient though. Do they take the beer up there with them? They, well, yeah, and actually when they finish it, they would um, all stand on the highest part and uh, have a big drink together. Right on. Anyway, <laughs> health and safety. How are you, Jed McCartney? I'm well, thank you. And it's nice to see Sarah back. I haven't seen you for ages. I know. I You've think probably been here, but I wasn't or something. I, I think I went a bit AWOL. Hmm. I'm not sure what happened. Hmm. No, I was here. We I've did a pre-record face. with that farmer man who ruled, Charles, Charles Massey, <laughs> but you were away. That's yeah. what happened. Yeah. Blame lies with you, I think, Jed. Yeah. Well, what are we talking about today? We have, uh, there's another person whose presence <coughs> looms. <coughs> Ominous. No, <laughs> it's going to be great. It's well. We should, maybe I should mention how you came to be here because we, we used to be as a show very organised. There'd be like three months booked in advance. But Friday night, I was at a social in- gathering, and uh, and I ran into uh, Shona Candy, who was not only a repeat guest but a sometimes um, co-host. Yes, indeed, a little bit of guest co-hosting. Yeah. So midnight on a Friday night, I was like, oh, Shona, do you know anybody who could come on the show on Tuesday? And I was like, oh, no, no, just, 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 can't, think of, just can't think of anyone. Just yeah. can't think of anyone at all. I'm like, oh, but, you know, think about it, but it's late. My brain's not really working. It's Friday night, you know. Yeah. Then we got talking. Yeah. And I was like, oh, by the way, we've got a report coming out on Monday. And he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, well, why don't you come on on Tuesday? <laughs> and here you are. Here I am. Yes. So we have a brand. It's the it's the final report of a four year project which you have been working on all that time. Uh, Not all that time. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> I came in about halfway through. There was a, a very a very talented um, advance guard um, of uh, colleagues of mine who started it off, but then I helped helped help bring it home. Hmm. 
Well, for people that haven't heard uh, your voice before, uh, should I say that you are, what's your role at Vale, the Victorian Eco Innovation Lab? Yes, indeed. So I'm a research fellow at Vale and I research into food and urban systems. Mm-hmm. And this project in particular, 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 I don't know, is about um, low-carbon cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's called Visions and Pathways 2040. So it's creating, as we said, visions, as is in the title, and then the pathways to low-carbon cities for um, pro- focusing on southern Australia because yep. um, things are a bit different in the north climate-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of what we, we look into. And actually we had uh, your colleague, Pippa Chandler come in and talk about the last report that you did. That's right, yeah. yeah. So this is a a follow-on from that. And the big picture thing that we're talking about here is, well, we know that in order for us to survive beyond just a few hunter-gatherers on the edge of the Arctic Circle, we have to draw, we have to radically reduce our carbon. We do. So there was a, basically we decided on a target of uh, emissions reduction by um, 80% by 2040. Um, because we figured there's, it's you know the Paris Agreement and everything it all talks about reaching um, carbon neutrality or zero net carbon by the second half of this century. So if we're going to get down really low by about 2050, then we had to get to at least 80 percent mm-hmm. by 2040. And I think the time frame, the 2040 time frame, we chose because when the it's it's within about sort of 25 years, you know, um, around that kind of time, and that's far enough away to be able to sort of think you can change things before then, but close enough so that it's within a decision-maker's lifetime. So Mm. the decisions we make now to bring about some sort of new, better future in 2040 will actually be living in the future. So there's a bit of, you know, there's a vested interest in there. Yep. To um, to actually make it better and to come up with some really good solutions. Yeah, not just your children or grandchildren will be alive in that. You might be. Yeah, well, that's like good for selfish people like us, Adam, yeah. who don't have kids. Yeah, we get to <laughs> exactly. reap the rewards yeah. of our choices. You also get to do you know the hard work and stuff. So you mm. know, heavy lifting, heavy lifting. Now, if if you if you turn to You know, popular culture for visions of the future, they tend to be rather grim. Although I've got to say that does make for pretty good viewing. It does. I haven't seen the latest Blade Runner, but I did actually study it in year 12 when I was way back in high school. So I should should go and see it, although at the moment I have very little time to go to the movies. Yeah, they're quite dystopian. Mm -hmm. Um, Our futures aren't as as bleak as uh, as Blade Runner. But I did get a comment on, uh, on Twitter the other day about how they are refreshingly un-utopian. So there are some downsides which mm. we thought were pretty important because no future is perfect. Yep. Um, no society is perfect. There's ups and downs and there's trade-offs. And um, if we want to kind of um, have benefits in some areas, we might have to work a bit harder in others. Mm. So this this project and this final report is a summation of your work looking into the future. It's, it's called backcasting in the industry, isn't it? Yeah. So it's trying to work out. So what pathway do we need to take to get? So we, we came up with these four um, four different futures in the in the last report. Yep, and this is what Pippa told, it about, that was told Pippa, us about. Yeah. So um, brief recap: one of them was called clean tech corporate living, and it's about when if uh, companies in the private sector will take control and fix everything up for us. Um, it's and the kind then of Elon Musk scenario. Yeah, definitely a bit of a Tesla future. That mm-hmm. kind of Tesla, Google, whatever they're doing. You know. Then we had what's called planned regulated living, which is. Um, 
you know, the, the government comes in and, and, and takes control. So those two futures are very sort of top-down. Mm-hmm. We did sort of jokingly call that one Sweden too, <laughs> you know. So those are top-down where, you know, either big entities will, will take action. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are another two uh, scenarios which were both kind of bottom-up. So one we called networked entrepreneurial living, which is what has jokingly been called the thieves and hustlers. So it's kind of the, the for-profit, you know, um, everyone's kind of freelancing and there's there's Uber everywhere. It's your Uber and your Airbnb future and that kind of thing. And then there's the community balanced living, which is like series on steroids, basically. Um, so it's all, we share everything, we... Um, we, we reduce our consumption in particular. So in both of those other those futures, consumption comes down, whereas in the other two, there's some reduction of consumption in the that's sort of regulated in the government future, but in the, the corporate one, we basically don't have to change our lifestyles. We just increase all the efficiency and, and we're all okay. Yeah. Yeah. So... Then what we've kind of we had we have we've had a series of workshops um, throughout the whole four years, yeah. and the pathways workshop that we had after that report, the reflections we got. So we it's very much an engagement project where we we bring in people who are making these decisions, who were you know the movers and shakers in urban areas. So your urban designers, there your local government um, industry. We've got partners on this project like Acom, Oricon, City of Melbourne, you know, um, community groups, and they all come in and we get their feedback, and they they actually help build these scenarios. And their feedback on the four was that that four scenarios was. N- each one of them couldn't exist on their own. So an example is to get a clean tech corporate future, you'd probably have to have government intervention with a carbon tax first. Yeah. So it was this these kind of tensions, I think, that came up between these scenarios that then we, we decided that for the final stage, for the pathways, that we wanted to sort of meld some of them together. So mm-hmm. we really brought the top-down ones together. So... Uh, mix mix them in so there's a bit of corporate and a bit of government action but still um bigger entities come in and they make the decisions and they take action but it's driven that in our future it's driven by local government Mm. so local government influence state and federal they get fed up with all the shenanigans that are going on and and that kind of thing and then they they work behind the scenes and they take action and then they bring about change sorry so that one's called green growth mm-hmm. i should actually mention the names of yep. the pathways um and then the other one is a commons transition so this is a sort of more radically different future where citizens people just people like you and me are kind of sick of in action from the top down, and so they start working from the bottom up. Yeah. So, um, and that one's, yeah, this, the commons transition one is reducing consumption, but also um, taking advantage of, like, you know, peer-to-peer networks and um, the sharing economy, um, as well as, you know, community-based kind of interactions, polycentric governance and that kind of thing. So, uh, so yeah, we bring those in, and um, and so they, they kind of offset each other as two different alternatives that both get to an 80% reduction in emissions mm-hmm. by 2040. So when you're modelling these, you're modelling them for the, the outcome we need at 2040, which is you know, two degrees or and, and trying to work out how they're going to work? Yeah, and so what we do is we, we make... 
we, we have these scenario narratives and we base these narratives on what's happening now. So there's seeds of these futures in the present. Mm. Um, so things like we know probably electric cars are going to, the uptake of electric cars is going to come along, you know, fairly soon. Um, and then we've got all already these like sharehood.org and these other kind of sharing things happening. And we know that there's, there's, some, there's definitely action at local government level for zero carbon strategies. So... Um, what we do is we then turn those into quantitative settings. So these narratives, these stories, we're like, okay, how would these translate into numbers? And um, so we then say, okay, so we're assuming that 80% of the population by 2040 um, is going to have an electric car and that those cars are going to be powered by 100% renewable energy, which is um, a key thing is definitely energy or electricity in particular because that's a really huge part of our emissions. And so in these settings, we, we play around with it a bit and we go, okay, so what happens if with electricity generation, we when all those plants that we have now, the dirty fossil fuel plants, come to the end of their lives, if we switch them to renewables, some mix of wind, solar, whatever, what do we get? And in our kind of first iteration... Of, of this, we found that we actually had to accelerate the shutdown of the power plants. So there's got to be some other factor that causes this these plants to be shut down before they reach the end of their expected working life. Because yep. if we didn't do that, we wouldn't get to 80% reduction by 2040. It would take until about 2070. Hmm. So it's these, and that process is where we run our settings once and then you- we look. Can you explain what you say? When, when you run your settings, what yeah. you're talking about, and you talked about this the first time you came on Green oh. the Apocalypse, was that under, it's not just a group of people sitting around a room saying, wouldn't this be nice? There's that as well. Yes, there, there's well, a bit I of that. that. I thought it was a vision quest. <laughs> where you like have peyote and just figure it. Sorry. <laughs> but there's, there's that. And also people critiquing things from yeah. all different angles. Yeah. But underneath it all, you're combining those visions with a computer model and yeah. a quite... It's uh, enormous. Yeah. yeah. So it's a model... Really sophisticated It's a model, model called the Australian Stocks and Flows Framework yeah. and it was developed by the CSIRO over about a 20-year period yeah. and it's a model of the entire physical economy of Australia. And that... Um, so it's enormous. It's got... So basically what, what our population is, what they need, they need housing, they need energy, they mm. need cars, you know, they have a lifestyle that you needs to be supported by various resources. And mm. so... In this model is also the resources that we have. So it's our land, our water, our minerals, our infrastructure, all those kind of things are represented and linked all together in this kind of massive 3D spider web, which mm. model kind of thing. So it can be a bit difficult to get your head around at and, times. And so in one of your scenarios, you know, somebody says, oh, I think we should grow algal for bio, algae for biofuel in rooftops or something, and somehow you can... Yeah, yeah. Put that so, into a... Well, it's, there's like the main framework that yeah. we work with and then we can do little side things where we can sort of put some extra, you know, um, we can write a little bit of code. I know it sounds really dorky, but we write a bit of code mm. and then we can feed it back into this model. So it's got a bit of flexibility. So you've got your main things. Yeah. But it, what it does is it's based on about over 100 years of historical data mm. and this historical data form becomes kind of a calibration of this model. Any model, any modelling you do has to be calibrated. Otherwise, what's to say that these linkages that you're modelling are true? Mm. 
So um, does it really take that much water to grow a tomato? Does a car really produce that much emissions per mm. yeah? So it's 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 so what we do is you use this historical data that we have, which mm. is on water use, land use, emissions, all these sorts of things. And you then using those those data sets, you work out how they relate to each other. And those are those interactions, how they relate to each other, are things like a carbon intensity of a car or the water intensity of a particular kind of agriculture. Mm. And those, so how much, yep. how much carbon a car uses, does that mean? Like yeah. a car uses or how, how much it, it takes to produce a both. car? Both. Ah. Well, how much it produces when you burn the fuel and yep. also how much emissions are involved in the embodied emissions yep. in, in your cars, in your houses, in all that sort of thing. So yeah. in all that stuff. Well, that's great because a lot of visions of the future where you're thinking about um, carbon emissions, they just imagine you can switch over all the infrastructure without mm-hmm. cost. But that's no. obviously a massive investment and it takes carbon to do it. And that's the point with the, um, with the pathways and why this kind of modelling is so important. There's a lot of carbon modelling um, out there that is like carbon accounting. It's really great at doing a snapshot and we, we did that for our four original scenarios. We got, a, we got a snapshot of each one of those just to check what would be required to get to the reduction. But then we started to go, oh, look, it says here if we have 80% electric cars, then we'll get to this spike. Great, cool. But then we went, hang on, how long does it take to make those cars mm. and do we have the resources to make mm. those cars? Will we have to import stuff, that kind of thing? So it's, it's imports and exports. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like let's not get too geeky. No, 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 no. no. But the take-home point I'm that. getting yeah, yeah. is... Sorry, I think it's a bit late for that. <laughs> but the take-home point for me is that, like, whatever these imagined scenarios you've come up with, they've been, you know, and we, they can be questioned... From all different levels, but there's an element of realism to the f- the physical possibility. Because I I'm not even I, I'm really happy to be convinced that there is a way that we yeah. could reduce our emissions somehow, even if there are massive political hurdles. I think yeah, to get um, I, look, there's been great work done before us, like from Beyond Zero Emissions and other groups like that who have pretty much run the numbers and they've said it is possible to do these things. I mean, it's it's so important to have the vision and the narrative to... We have to bring people along. They have to be able to imagine that. But alongside that, we've also got to run the numbers and say, is it actually possible to produce how many millions of electric cars by 2040 to get the emissions reductions that we want. Mm. So that's, um, you know, that's that kind of... And this is where this system dynamics modelling, that's what this this model is, is really important because it's how things interact with each other and how they change over time. Mm. You're listening to Greening the Apocalypse. We're joined in studio by former co-host and legend Shona Candy from the Victorian Eco Innovation Lab. She's talking about a report that's just come out called Pathways 2040, um, Scenarios and Pathways to Low-Carbon Living. So, Shona, what kind of things are we talking about here? That we need um, to do well. The major things that were kind of really in both, I suppose, in, in both scenarios was, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's the like shift to one hundred percent renewable electricity generation and other forms of energy. You know, like getting rid of gas and all that kind of thing. Anything that has you know kind of a, a significant carbon intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also what what we really found when we're modelling these scenarios is that we'd probably have to plant a whole lot of trees mm. in the short term to actually get down. So this is what we tried to model, and we were, you know, we were we were tweaking around all the edges. We're going, okay, if we all we all um, had you know clean energy, we all you know ate, ate less red meat, we all all these sorts of things. Um, 
and we still had to plant a, a bunch of trees. Mm. And the difference between the two... And the reason initially, um, if anyone who's had a look at our report, you can download only it. It's only been out for one day. It's so. only been out for one day, but you know, in case you're eager, um, there's an interesting part in it where um, we, in our modelling, to get the reduction that we needed... Um, we had to plant a whole lot of trees in a very short period of time. Mm. And the thing about trees is they're great um, for sort of carbon capture and storage. Well, for carbon sequestration when they're first growing. But mm. overall, a forest won't be really very much a net carbon sink so It'll much. reach an equilibrium as yeah, the trees mature. As they, yeah, as they get older, they drop branches, some of them die, yeah. you know, they rot, then the, the carbon's then released again. It's cool to have the forest. But it's not, yeah. not drawing down carbon. At it's some, not drawing. It's not continually. It does yeah. initially when the trees yeah. are growing. Oh, we're talking like twenty, maybe a hundred years for some yeah. forests. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But um, so you can see probably in some of our graphs and stuff, there's like this sharp drop, and that's where we're like planted a whole bunch of trees. Mm. You know, logistically, you know that's, that's going to be a challenge. But we do have the land to do it, and we do all these sorts of Which things. Which parts of Australia are you like talking Northern about? Like Northern Territory and Queensland kind of thing, where yep. there's vast tracts of land. That's kind of where we'd have to plant them. Yep. But we've kind of the amount we'd have to plant, we'd have to plant a lot yep. um, all around the country. We need to green cities. We need to do all these sorts of things. We need to rethink agriculture, how we do that. So can we, you know, can we farm livestock and grow trees on the same land? You know, is this possible? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so these trees, so we wouldn't... We'd have to have that, to, but we, we still need to do it because in the short term we've got to bring down our emissions. So we, if we plant a whole bunch of trees and then that gives us time to decarbonise the rest of our economy. Mm. So to shut down our fossil fuel power plants, you know, hopefully sooner than the end of their life, but, you know, that you takes time. You might have time. to have a mutiny report. A mutiny report. Like a follow-up where the people rise up and shut down the coal. And shut down the coal, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, that's kind of what we talked about in these narratives is that what would drive that? Mm. What would drive that accelerated shutdown? Guns? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, they're actually referring to a previous <laughs> appearance where um, I think it was Radio I can't get it out of my head. Yeah, yeah. Um, where I came dressed up as... Um, this is Out of context, it's going to sound really strange. <laughs> I came, we have to now. Yeah, all right. So um, I was a bit cynical that night and I kind of said that, well, I told a story about collapse, whether or not there was a debate where it wasn't really a debate, it was just a bunch of people sort of sort of disagreeing with each other. And, um, and there was David Holmgren who said that, um, you know, I think collapse will be good because then we can, like, rise like a phoenix from, phoenix from the ashes and it's <laughs> going to be fantastic and there's going to be permaculture and, and it was all like a beautiful, you know, utopian kind of vision. And then Philip Sutton came in afterwards and he said, well, yes, permaculture is all, all lovely and everything, but if it came to collapse, it would be permaculture with guns. <laughs> and so I came dressed up for Radiothon as permaculture with guns. And I can't shake it from oh, my mind. I'm sorry. No, it's great. <laughs> anyway, back to the report. Back to the report. What yeah. about, is there seaweed in there anywhere? About, uh, we oh. don't. I think, well, there's, there's seaweed not, not explicitly kind of modelled, but, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. So, there's yeah, there's, there's things where we've, we've looked at the differences really between the two kind of pathways and you can you can see it is that a commons transition one yes we make things more efficient in in different ways we share things we don't each own one car mm. so all those embodied embodied emissions in in the cars is is reduced mm-hmm. we also consume less uh, we we work less because we don't need to work so much and so because we work less we're not wasting so much or we're not you know needing all this stuff for convenience yeah. when do we start, start? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I've already started. Yeah. <laughs> but then the other one was um, an interesting part of the other scenario was that we really don't, well, the majority of the population doesn't really change their lifestyle. They just switch to more efficient things mm. without that kind of lowering of, of consumption. And, um, and for that one, we had to plant a lot more trees to yeah. sort of offset that. So if we don't kind of meet the future in the middle somehow mm. by, yes, making things more efficient, but also reassessing what, like the wastage, I think, in our, in our life, yeah. then it will, will make things easier for ourselves if we, if we do that um, to get to this, this sort of low-carbon target. Mm. In your models, do you, have, um, can you, do you have sliders on them where you can visualise different things? Oh, that would be lovely. It's a little bit more complicated than yeah. that. <laughs> we, change, we change numbers and we can play around with different trends for things. Yeah. So, so usually the, that historical database shows trends for different things. Like, mm. you know, the energy efficiency of cars will be going down over time, but we can accelerate it. We can make it go faster or we can, you know, put electric cars in that cause like a radical drop in the carbon intensity of cars in general, yeah, yep. that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. There's so many factors to consider. There are quite a Did few. Did you keep um, doing it and then someone would be like, ah, oh, what about we forgot this thing? Is, is it, did it keep, does it become this sprawling, gigantic well, model? That- yeah, what was the tricky thing? Well, the, there's a bunch of stuff in there and what was sort of, we're looking at low-carbon cities because we know cities really contribute a lot to global emissions yeah. because, well, partly because now that more than 50% of the population live in cities, but also we do have quite carbon-intensive lifestyles, particularly in, in Australia. So that's why we're looking at cities. But what we really found, we, we took what's called a consumption-based approach. So not just the emissions that were generated within the geographical area of the city, but the things that the emissions that were generated, as we mentioned before, that occur on the city's behalf but happen outside the city. So like Elect- asparagus from Kururup or something? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Or, or you know, um, electricity from the Latrobe Valley. Yeah. Um, or imported goods from overseas, that kind of thing. There's, there's emissions associated. So we tried to take into account, like, all the emissions, yeah. not just the ones that Ooh. happen in the city. So, so I don't know, how, um, how much would you like to live? Like, if you could choose between living now and in... These two scenarios, which would you? What would you go for? Yeah, look, I'm a. I go to series every Friday. I really like the Commons Transition one, you yeah. know. But I do recognise that it's got its downsides. Mm. So, um, like what? Well, there'd be a lot of. You, you really have to participate more. Djembe? Djembe. <laughs> Is there djembe in that one. There might be some drumming circles. Yeah. I don't know, um, but there definitely. It would take more from you. Yes, you'd be working less, but you'd have to make more decisions, you mm. know, and you'd have to make more decisions with other people. And I'm, I'm a very, I'm quite a task-oriented person and I can be quite driven at times and sometimes, you know, having to discuss it with, all with other people, I would probably find a bit annoying. Yeah. Mm. Um, but then the other one that I see, there's, there's a significant amount of inequality in the other um, future. So we actually modelled to really get down to our... We, we, we played with the idea of universal basic income, but um, kind of in the form of carbon credits. So, but when we made it, we had a split in our society, which is probably kind of a microcosm of what goes on in the rest of the world, really. But based on the fact that, you know, robots would come along and people would lose some jobs, mm-hmm. um, and so they wouldn't have 
But to prevent revolution, you know, you you provide people with universal basic income, but it's yeah. only enough really to survive, to yeah. not really have a great life. So yeah. while the majority of the population keeps going yeah. on their merry way, the there might be a, a proportion who actually can't really go anywhere and can't really do much and probably can't eat very much red meat, exceeds their carbon credits. Just the people that continue on, what, what material things would they have to do without? Or are you um, saying they wouldn't? Just... They wouldn't really. They just make everything more efficient. So you wouldn't have a fossil fuel burning car, you'd have an electric car. You'd have a... Um, you'd have a better insulated house. Um, so you'd, you'd reduce your emissions from heating and cooling. Um, there's there's some increase, because that's a, a future which is not just corporate, it's also got um, some some um, government influence in it. You um, There'd be a bit more active transport, probably, because, you know, that would be what a government would kind of try to mandate that. Um, but it wouldn't be not like the, the other one, the, the sort of commons transition where... You know, you, you work from home and you don't need to commute and you don't need to do this sort of thing um, in general and you don't work as many days. Hmm. Well, I don't know if we did quite as much justice to fleshing out those quite no. literary and, um, and, and imaginative well, futures. I want to ask you... In, what, not in a negative sense. What but you, a, which one you would like to live in? Oh... <laughs> uh, I mean, I, you know, it pays me to say it, but I do like the convenience of the modern world and the green tech transition would allow me to think less. But I think, yeah, there's pros and cons. I mean, I live more yeah. of the... I, I'm already, you know, living a little bit of the... Um, what, sorry, what's the other one? The, the, the community. Commons transition. The commons transition. The on, yeah, yeah. Probably my lifestyle already fits that pretty well. So Yeah. 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 But it, uh, I don't know. But what, what... So you've done this, you've done this huge four-year project... Yeah. You've used uh, hundreds of experts and members of the public's uh, inspiration to create these visions for the future, which, if they could exist, um, seem like they'd be reasonably good places to live and we wouldn't destroy the planet. You've ground truthed it with, well, you've done some at least systems thinking and number crunching with computer models to make these things um, somewhat realistic, even though no one can predict the future, but like plausible. Out of that must come some some things that you didn't expect and things like, all right, we have to plant tons of trees right now. If you were to just say three things that people could do, be they lobbying or changing their lifestyle that have come out of that, what would you say? Well, look, definitely we have to decarbonise energy. We absolutely, absolutely have to. Um, we just can't keep going as, as we are. Um, and things um, I would probably also say, um, and, and we have to, again, that switch from forest clearing to forest preservation. That's just essential. So these are not things people are going to like, you know, yes, you should ride your bike more. Yes, you should do all those things. But a lot of those direct emissions that are associated with your lifestyle are not the big ones. Mm. Probably another one that comes up is buy less stuff. They're the embodied emissions in all the stuff we have is is huge and 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 it's invisible mm. um so it's it's not that I, I, I don't want to describe it as learning to live with less because i don't think it is i don't think it is a lesser life mm. um it's it's i think i think being with less stuff you actually have a richer life there's oodles of research out there to say that you're happier with less stuff beautiful so with you there 
Yes. Well, um, thanks, Shona. Hang around for the next part. But um, it's been great to talk about this latest report. What's it? Uh, do you want to read out the title uh, once again? Yes, it's called Pathways 2040, Results from Visions and Pathways 2040, uh, Scenarios and Pathways to Low-Carbon Living. And you can download that from Vale's website, which is uh, Vale, uh, V-E-I. Il.msd.unimelb.edu.au. So just go look. But there's also, sorry, there's also um, the Visions and Pathways uh, website, which is visionsandpathways.com. So you can get it probably from those two places. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. Okay, so I've got a wild card today. Hmm. Um, Bushy's going to love this one. I have become obsessed with a vegan startup company from San Francisco that makes plant-based foods. Um, Their main product is called Just Mayo. It's an egg-free mayonnaise. Oh, yeah. You're quite a fan of the the yeast flakes. I love Um, nutritional yeast. I love it. it. It makes it hard to sleep, though, if you have too much before bedtime. That's a public service announcement. Um, so this Hampton Creek was founded in 2011 by these power vegans, Josh Bolk and Joshua Tetrick. That can't be their real names. That's their names. And it became um, a unicorn, which is a startup company valued at more than a billion dollars. What? Yeah. So the company, so they make vegan mayonnaise and cookies and it claims to be sustainable but it's been mired in controversy and for some reason I'm obsessed with it. Do tell so, why. Um, so in 2011 they start this company. They get all this. They get the former research and development guy from Unilever, which is the world's largest producer of food spreads. So they poach <laughs> him. Uh, they, they've got $239 million in funding so far from investors and uh, they hired a famous chef. They got all these celebrities so they get all this backing and then Tetrick is saying he's going to liberate billions of hens from the fetid misery of overstuffed cages and save water and grain and cut carbon pollution. Um, all sound so like good things. They file a patent for plant-based egg substitute and method of manufacture. Their first product's called Beyond Eggs. Mm-hmm. Then they make Just Mayo. Uh, and then they they get in trouble for using the word mayo in the name of its their vegan spread because federal definitions of food mean that mayonnaise has to contain eggs, but then they're allowed to use it, but they have to label it clearly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's not it's not that's not quite the bit the that weirds me out. This is the bit that weirds me out. Okay. So then the CEO insists that Hampton Creek is not a vegan food producer. He calls it a tech company that happens to be working in food. And he said in an interview, while a chicken egg will never change, our idea is that we can have a product where we push updates into the system, just like Apple updates its operating system. So our Mayo is version 1.0 and the next version will be 2.0, which will be less expensive and last twice as long. And so I was like, what's going on? And so I freaked myself out watching videos on their website. Mm. And um, I've got Jed's going to play a short clip from the company explaining who they are. Oh, it's got this music at the start. Blackbird is a technology platform that translates raw material in the form of plants into data that fuels the discovery of (laughs) food technologies that can really change the way that all of us eat. 
The first step is to go out into the world and identify the different plants that we might want to use, bring them in, and build this plant library that is incredibly diverse. So if we can identify these plants, bring them here in house, we'll decipher them at the molecular level. So how do all the different molecules interact with one another to result in properties like gelation or emulsification, foaming? These are the properties that closely relate to how something would behave in food. That's where the robots comes in. By using automation, we're able to speed up this process five to six times higher than what we have before. It's almost impossible to look at the data and say, here's a pattern, here's the answer. So we have to come up with algorithm to rank the materials and give downstream experiments a recommendation. In this way, we're using data to increase the probability of discoveries. Anyway, it, um, it freaks me out because it reminds me of the laundry detergent ants when they used to say, like, now with enzymes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they totally. basically made this stuff that's like fake egg with pea, ground up peas. Does it have, um, and this it's bit, not like it's a powder or something, right? You can't crack this thing and. Oh, that like, would, see, that would be cool. It would be like yeah. the Pavlova egg. Of yesterday. Oh, yes. Do you remember the that? Egg. Yep. Actually, um, I, yes. It was I like did. in a plastic. Yeah, egg in shaping. a big plastic. It was like yeah. about that um, big. Yeah. So that weirds me out. And then the company has made, in the past, they've made really big sustainability claims. Like on their Facebook page, they once said that one jar of just mayo saved 300 litres of water compared to a normal jar of mayonnaise. Or they had a thing on their website called the Cookie Calculator that showed that one of their cookies saved 35 grams of carbon emissions and 30 um, litres of water compared the, to normal cookies. The water thing is probably true. True. Well, it turns out that the numbers were wrong. Ah, People well, it's into close it. to that. Yeah, the well, I know that milk uses, like, producing milk uses a whole lot of water. Does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um... Water calculations are tricky because... Yeah. How do you it's make it's like, cream in mayo? It, no, no, it's just, is it just egg white or is there cream too? Is there dairy? No, no There's no yeah. dairy in mayo. Yeah. No, mayo's egg. It's egg only. Ma- and oil. And vinegar and oil. That's yeah. right. It's not, it's not milk. But the cookie was the one. Anyway, the, all their numbers were wrong. People looked into it and then they never publicly admitted that their figures were wrong. But the cookie calculator disappeared from their website. <laughs> and then um, last year, the Justice Department started investigating Hampton Creek for security violations and possible criminal fraud because the company hired a bunch of people to go to all the stores and buy 20 jars of Just Mayo to create the impression that it was a popular product to get, like, boost investment in the company. So they got found out. And oh. then Tetrix like, no, no, it was just quality control. And then the journalist said, oh... Usually quality control it happens before it makes it to the store or you buy one jar, you don't buy 20. And then yeah. so they got people to buy the mayo and then phone up the supermarket and be like, hey, do you have any more of that mayo to create this false demand? demand? Yeah. And then they, yeah, so they got in trouble for that. And then the latest thing that happened is they, um, everyone on the board has resigned except for Tetrick. He's the only one left. And he thought there was like a coup brewing and he has the main shares in the company. Mm. And anyway, so and the so latest they just don't want to be in the same room as him. Pretty much. So now he's saying that he's announced they're moving into the clean meat market, which is um, it's in your report, Shona, page 31. 
lab-grown <laughs> meat products. Meat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is where they um, grow meat in incubators by, like, taking stem cells from a live animal and then putting them in a growth medium and mm. growing it. So that's the future for them. Look yeah. forward to that video. Well, it's kind I mean, of like the Soylent future. You know, there was the, yeah. the guy also, also in the tech industry where he was, yeah. um, he was talking about how... He did, Very similar vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He created this. All he had to do was drink this thing, and he got all his nutrients and that kind yeah. of thing. And um, I think yeah. that'd be terrible. It's so I got strange. Some, we might do some stuff on Soylent sometime. I got a local company to send me some, so we'll do an on-air <laughs> tasting. So for those that don't know, it's a nutritionally complete powdered food while you drink. Do you it. have to add milk, or do you just add water? No, just water. You just add water. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't want to take the piss entirely out of this stuff. Okay, mm. so these guys were dodgy, I but there's pros take the and cons piss out to this, like. Oh, the lab-grown meat idea is an interesting one. Yeah. And honestly, some of the processing that the food that we eat goes through is pretty significant that we we don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's, I mean, yes, it's when you describe all their process and they talk about, you know, the molecular level and blah, 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 all that <laughs> yeah. sorts of things. Well, this is, it does actually happen, like highly processed stuff. Yeah. There's there's a lot of things added and a lot of, yeah, um, manipulation that goes on, definitely. I mean, if you think about, you know, trans fats and things like that, um, sort of the, the chemically, you know, they're, they're fake fats kind mm. of, and they're, they're to increase the shelf life of things like biscuits. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah. But, so those sorts of things are freaky. Yeah. So th- there's this whole kind of um, movement of people who have earned their chops in the tech industry and in I- IT and have earned a lot of money and then <laughs> take some of that process and visionary things, which is not always very connected to physical realities, even though these guys are ostensibly trying to and quantify the impacts of it. Um, and it's an interesting cultural phenomenon with some good and bad things. And in two weeks' time, we're going to do a show about the pinup boy of all this stuff. Mr. Elon Musk. And so we can delve into, you know, the ramifications of that kind of thinking and where it gets us and where it doesn't. Uh, Shana Candy, thanks for being a great guest again. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, so you um, have a video we didn't mention, which is a good introduction to everything that we're talking about tonight. Yeah, yeah. If you want kind of a snapshot in about five minutes and and you're not not big on reading the report or you want a bit of a taster or something like that, then, yeah, you can um, go uh, on on the Visions and Pathways website Mm -hmm. that I mentioned before, visionsandpathways.com. We'll put it up in the show notes and on our podcast. We've got a cool, cool, great little video that basically, you know... um, looks at the uh, the two different futures side by side and so you can kind of compare them and decide which one you really want to live in. Yep. I have a question. <laughs> I don't know who did it, but page 74 of this report has a photograph of a surf break and I would oh, like to know where it is. Actually, that I know you know what that that photo we we all saw that. I think it's actually a Shutterstock photo that our graphic designer ah, put in. She's very you. talented, Jackie. And um, yeah, but so I was, was trying to figure out where it was I'll in Australia. To, look, I will I think, ask her for you okay. where it was. Yep. Um, but yeah, we all like that photo. Uncrowded right hand. You're so good with nice. your page references. I'm just I'm amazed. It's OCD, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have anything coming up, Sarah Carls? Um, well. It's not really an event, but I've been experimenting with putting a purring cat on my broken toe Mm because it's reputed to help the bones knit faster. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I keep re-breaking it, but Rupert, the cat, is working hard at healing it. Yep. No events. Okay. So don't eat nutritional yeast before bedtime. Do put a cat on broken bones. Yep. Public service announcements tonight. 
Uh, Jed, thank you so much for pushing the buttons and controlling the dials. My pleasure. Sarah Coles, thanks again. Thank you, Adam. Mm. Do you know what's coming up next week? No. Uh, oh, I do. We're talking to <laughs> Professor Chris Williams. He's from the University of Melbourne. He's really into novel crops. Uh, On the topic yeah. of that, though, because um, he, he does a lot of stuff with urban agriculture, but we are currently running a project at the moment. If you're an urban farmer, we would love your data. So please go to the whale, the whale, the Vale website, and uh, or the Farming Melbourne Facebook page, and participate in our survey. We would love to hear from you if you are growing your own food in Melbourne. Good and grand. Well, we'll put up links to that on our show page. I've been Adam Grubb. We've been Greening the Apocalypse. And until next time, uh, don't boil a goat in its own mother's milk. That's from the Bible. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.